Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It had many, many moments where I was truly terrified and I thought we were going to die. And... Hello, and welcome to another season of Live Through That. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of my favorite artists from the 80s and 90s. This week, we're kicking off with a story from the legendary Gary Newman. He's a pioneer in electronic music, producing such early hits as Our Friends Electric and Cars. He's an inspiration to artists as varied as Nine Inch Nails, Damon Albarn from Blur, and the Foo Fighters. After a series of shows at Wembley in 1981, Newman decided to retire for a spell. Music got in the way of Newman's other love, flying planes, and in 1982, he decided to take his plane and circumnavigate the globe. Today, Gary tells us about the highs and lows of that experience. It's quite a tale, so buckle your seatbelts and strap in for the ride. We'll start at the beginning and how Gary first developed his love for airplanes. Well, that started when I was very young. You know, I, I, I think possibly because we always lived fairly close to Heathrow Airport. And so they was always around and I would spend hours watching them. So that that fascination with aeroplanes started from, oh, I don't know, four years old, five years old, that sort of thing. Um, then as I got older, it, it developed and I, I would go to air shows regularly and I was fascinated by uh, military aeroplanes, combat aeroplanes, you know, World War II in particular. And then I joined a thing that we have in, in England called the Air Training Corps, which is like a a kiddies version of the Air Force, you know, you, all, all you really do is march up and down and wear a uniform. You don't have that much to do with aeroplanes, but I was in that for a while. Um, and then it all went fairly quiet. And, and it, the reason I was able to learn to fly, my dad worked at British Airways as a, as a baggage handler and uh, not as a pilot. And uh, a group of uh, friends of his, they were getting together with the intention of buying a small light aeroplane, a little two-seater Cessna. And my dad didn't want to fly it, but he, he was interested in being a part of this group. So he said that he would 
um, pay for me to learn to fly, which was amazing, you know, and I still don't know whether that story was actually true, whether he was just, you know, willing to help me learn to fly. But anyway, I went off and, and did my flying course and I was very, very close to being finished when um, I had a, a song go to number one in Britain and the music career um, <laughs> took off <laughs> and um, that kind of got in the way. So I, it was about a year or so later that I, I went back and, and finished the flying course and got my, I got my license for it. And then um, the music thing um, was sort of going fairly strong for a while. And, and then I, I was really sort of disenchanted with that, really. I, I didn't take to the fame thing very well at all. Um, it wasn't what I expected. And, and uh, I, I really felt that I needed time away from it. And, and so I said I was going to retire from, from live music for a while. Um, and I threw myself into flying full time. I, I got multi-engine licenses for more complex aeroplanes, did helicopters, jet helicopters, um, instrument ratings, night ratings, all, all, I did everything, you know, everything I could do as a, as a private pilot. And then decided that I just wanted something that was a, a, a real adventure. I, I think part of it was a reaction to the way that I was being talked about in the press. And, and I think an, another part of it really was, was wanting to do something that I thought would make my dad um, proud of me, um, which which sounds very unfair. To, you know, it, it would that makes it sound as as if my dad wasn't proud of me because of you know what I'd achieved with music, you know, with number one albums and singles and things. And he obviously was, but so I think it was more of a personal kind of hang up for me. You know, that I I didn't feel that I'd done anything that was worthy. You know, the musical thing seemed to come fairly easily. And I realized that a great deal of luck was involved in that. So I didn't feel particularly clever or that I'd accomplished much. I just thought that I was really lucky. You know, I just stumbled across this sound, this instrument, and I'd you know, written a few songs, which, you know, luckily had struck a chord with people. And, and I'd, you know, I'd become quite successful at it. And But it didn't feel like I'd done anything special. I certainly didn't feel like I was a particularly talented songwriter or singer or anything like that. You know, so I, I didn't feel that I'd done something that my dad would be proud of. So I was looking for something different, you know, something that would take courage, um, you know, a, a degree of intelligence, something that I thought he, he would be proud of. And at the same time, it would be something that was very, very different to making records and going out on tour and doing all that, you know, and wearing makeup and prancing around on stage. You know, I thought if I did something very, very different, then maybe the press would see me differently and that would help. You know, that would help the career. So there are a number of reasons for it. Plus, you know, just a, a genuine interest in doing something unusual and, and daring. So so I was watching a, a documentary about a lady that flew from London to Sydney in, in, a, in a light aeroplane and just thought, that's the thing. That's that's what I do. I love aeroplanes. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've just stopped touring. So I've got plenty of time. Um, I'll, I'll fly around the world and, and I could use that use that trip as a way of promoting a new album that's coming out. So it would be an entirely different thing for me to do, an entirely different way of promoting an album you know, by flying around the world and talking about it rather than doing it all. And I just thought it would be a great adventure. I did it with a man called Bob Thompson, who was... Um, an air display pilot back in Britain, um, which is something else I, I got into a bit later. I was, I was an aerobatic display pilot. 
a few years after that. But he was one of the, the main air display pilots that, that I knew. And he also had a, an office at the airfield that I flew from. Uh, what, what actually, how it started was that the, the documentary that I've seen about the lady that flew to Australia, I, I got in touch with a man that organized that flight for her, a man called uh, Julian Knott. He was a British balloonist, I think, quite a, a record-breaking balloonist. And he had organized everything. And so I got in touch with him and said that I wanted to do this trip around the world, all the way around. Uh, and he said that he would organize it for me, you know, with the various visas and passports and clearances and got, you know, all the different things, including the airplane that would be required to do that sort of thing and the modifications that the airplane would need. So I left it with Julian to sort out. And then a few months later, I'm in, I'm in the, the cafe at the airfield talking to this man, Bob Thompson, this other, other man that I knew. And he was asking me how it was all going. And he asked a few very pointed questions about, you know, do you have the airplane yet? You know, do you have clearances for this, that, this region and that region? And I said, I, no, I don't, none of that seems to have happened yet. And he said, well, it's, it's not going to happen then. He said, you need to talk to that man, Mr. Knott, and find out what he's doing. Because if he hasn't got an airplane by now, then there's no way you're going to get this thing ready in time for the departure date, which we'd, which we'd set for it, which I think was September of that year. Um, so I spoke to Mr. Julian Knott, who had to admit that he thought I was bluffing, that I never intended to do it, and hadn't got anything ready whatsoever. Nothing. No aeroplane, no clearances, nothing. Absolutely nothing. No visas. And so we were absolutely nowhere with just a few months to go. And so uh, I went back to, to Bob and explained that to him. And as luck would have it, he was not only a pilot, he had a an air freight business, an aeroplane business. So he was very, very um, knowledgeable about clearances and visas and that kind of thing, because that was his um, that was his job, really. And so he took it on at very, very short notice and did an amazing job, found an aeroplane, got everything sorted out. Some of that was weird. You know, you, you, you go to some of the embassies that you have to go to to get the clearances that you need. And uh, it was it was really I, I couldn't believe it. You know, it, it was um, you know, money in an envelope under the desk kind of thing. And I, I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just, I wasn't used to that sort of thing whatsoever. Anyway, so, you, you know, you're, you're getting clearances to go here, there and everywhere. And you're bribing some people and not, not others. And eventually we had this aeroplane, a thing called a Cessna Centurion. And we had all the modifications done on it. All the extra seats were taken out, fuel tanks were put inside. Um, we went to the to Royal Air Force and had uh, training there on survival equipment. And they, they lent us some, uh, we, we had this um, like like a May West thing with equipment in the pockets, you know, locator beacons, flares, smoke, that, that kind of thing. And one of the things in the pocket was a, a blue sachet that had shark repellent written on it. Well, that freaked me out. <laughs> and I said, does that really work? You know, shark repellent. And he said, the man, the, the Air Force man said to me, he said, well, they either like it or they hate it. He said, if they hate it, you're looking good. He said, if, if they like it, at least it would be over quickly. <laughs> good, attitude, good attitude. So we did, anyway, so we did all that. We got all the Air Force training done. We got these survival suits that, that could keep, if you went down into, um, up near the Arctic and those sorts of super cold temperatures, um, it could keep you alive for four hours, keep you afloat and alive for four hours. So, so they were essential. So got the aeroplane ready.
We had a problem with the aeroplane the day we started. We, we were flying the aeroplane from uh, the airfield it was based at into Heathrow Airport, where there was this big departure party with Radio 1 DJs and the television were there and all that sort of thing. And the aeroplane, when it took off to fly to Heathrow, there was a problem with the undercarriage and the, the, the doors closed before the wheel came up. So it crunched the doors. So it had to go back and get repaired before it even started. So not the best beginning, to be truthful. So that, that should have said something. Anyway, um, with that aeroplane, we got as far as India. We, there, not much trouble going across Europe. We got to Cyprus, Eastern Mediterranean. And then from there, we were going to go across uh, Syria and then into the Middle East and then onwards from there. We, we had some trouble over Syria when they insisted we, we flew up at 21,000 feet, I think it was. And we, we just couldn't stay there. The aeroplane was too heavy. It was too hot. And it just wouldn't, it wouldn't stay there. And the thing that was, what was scary about that was they were threatening to send up a military escort for us to, to check us out. And, um, and obviously, we didn't look like a normal civilian aeroplane. You know, all the back seats were taken out. We had fuel tanks in with oxygen tanks on top of that. We were wearing parachutes. You know, you know we, did not, we did not look like a, a normal civilian aeroplane just, just flying along. So we were a little bit concerned about that. But luckily, we were able to talk to an airliner, and an airliner was able to relay the problem that we were having because we, you know, we, were, we weren't able to stay at the height they wanted. And when we descended, our, our BHF radios didn't have the range, so we couldn't talk to them, so that, that looked even more suspicious. Anyway, so we got, we got through that. We got into the Middle East, I think it was Bahrain, I think it was. Um, we had a bit of trouble going out of Bahrain because it was too hot and the airplane wouldn't climb, so we got stuck and... Um, couldn't go up, couldn't come down because it was too heavy. So that was a bit scary. Anyway, got through that one and eventually got to India, landed in a place called Madras to start with and um, where we had to bribe customs to let us out the airport. That was another weird one. Like, everywhere you went, bribing this. And, and you, you don't, you don't realise that. You know, man, I'm English. I'm just used to going to an airport and showing my passport and, and I'm on my way. You, you know, it, that's what you expect. You, you know, but so you get to the airport and you're sitting there for two hours and nobody's talking to you and nobody's doing anything. And, and you don't understand what's, what's required until somebody sort of gives you a little whisper in your ear that, you, you know, that they're waiting for you to pay them. For what? They're just waiting for you to pay them. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, okay. You know, so... You don't know how much to pay them, what's insulting, what isn't. Anyway, so we did that. So we, we, we took off from Madras and we was going up the East Coast and we went into a, a, a monsoon. So a very, very, very thick cloud, torrential rain, didn't, couldn't see the ground for, for hours and eventually got up to um, northeastern part of India where there's an airway that we were going to go across the ocean, the Indian Ocean to, uh, to Thailand. When we turned out, we was about 60 miles out over the ocean when the engine started to run, run quite ragged. And so that was quite scary. So it looked as if we were going to go down into the ocean. But so we turned back to India. We had quite a way to, to, go, to go back because the, the wind was against us going back. So, it's, so that was pretty scary. And the whole time, the, the whole time we're traveling, trying to get back, the engine is popping and sputtering and just sounded like a tractor on its last legs. It was terrifying so i i had my the dinghy strapped to my parachute i was all prepared you know if it should be go down into water my, my shark repellent was at the ready yeah we get back to india and we land we landed in a place called visakapatnam which is a, a small town on the east coast of india and um we were too heavy we're still overweight because of the, the extra fueling airplane but we 
we landed in this place um, and it you know, didn't break the aeroplane, which was which was good news. Taxied in, and then the then the the, the trouble started. The airport manager said that we could go and go into town where there was um, a telex machine, no phones, but a telex machine. And we could use the telex machine to call back to England and tell them what had happened and try to organize spares being shipped out or an engineer actually to come out to look at the aeroplane. And then the next thing we know, we, we, the, the immigration, the customs people have turned up all very, very angry with guns, um, really heavy. You know, we'd, we'd gone to these rooms in this um, this place where we were, where we'd gone to stay for the night, and the door burst open, and all these people come rushing in, shouting, and why are you here? Why are you here? Well, that sort of thing. And so, I tried to explain to them, you know, that we were, you know, we're flying around the world. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of an adventure. We've had a problem with the airplane. We've landed here, and we're trying to find spare parts, and we're going to be here for a few days until the airplane can be fixed. And it wouldn't have any of it. You know, they said. Um, they said some of the most mental things. Were you taking photographs? Because we had a big camera, because we were going to make a documentary. It was either a 16 millimeter movie camera and a stills camera with a big lens on it. And I said, um, they said, were you taking photographs of the Russian submarine base? I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, and I said to them, what, what Russian submarine base in India? What Russian submarine base? And he said, 20 miles south. I said, why are you telling me? Why, why are you telling me where it is if you think I am a spy? What on earth makes you think I'm a spy? Well, you have the camera. And it, it weighs a ton. You know, this thing, it's not like it was James Bond in the end of a pen. It was a bloody great thing that you put on your shoulder. You know, how is that, that spy's equipment? You know, it's, it was just unbelievable. And, it said, and then he accused me of, of, of being a smuggler. I said, what, what makes me a smuggler? What am I smuggling? And he said, well, you've got two watches on. See, yeah, we have a watch for local time and, and a watch for what used to be, you know, GMT, or it's called UTC now. But, you know, for international travel, you, you have a standard time zone. And so, I, so I said, it's for, it's for the flying, you know, one for local time, one, one for flight planning, for, for international flying. And I said, to, to be honest, I said, the second watch, well, they're both cheap watches, but the second one I got for £1.99 in a fuel garage. Why would I fly an aeroplane all the way to India to smuggle a watch that isn't even worth £2? So it, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. And then they said... Uh, yeah, well, maybe you were taking photographs of the of the military aeroplane behind you. And that made me laugh that the military aeroplane that they were talking about was a thing called a Britain Norman Islander, which they make on the Isle of Wight in Britain. You can do a tour of the factory. You can watch them being built. That's how secret they are. And the man that I was with, Bob Thompson, used to be a test pilot for Britain Norman. I said to the Indian man, I said, Bob has probably flown that actual aeroplane. He would have flown it before it came to you because that was his job, you know, and now you're saying we're spying on it. But they were not happy. They, they took our passports off us. They sent us to this, um, these rooms to stay in, which were full of Russians, by the way. All the Russian families that presumably were from the base were all billeted in the place they put us. How does that make any sense? So now we're mixing with the Russians that we're supposed to be spying on.
for the next two or three days, to be fair, it was it was quite intimidating. We had an armed guard on the door for a start. We weren't allowed out of the rooms. Probably, you know, between two, three, four o'clock in the morning, always the early hours of the morning, they were banging, door would come flying in, all very dramatic. And they would just say the same thing. Why are you here? I tried to explain to them that I was a I was a pop star. You know, and that we're flying around the world for an adventure and I'm gonna talk about my new album and and he actually said, he said to me, if you're, a, if you're a pop star, where are your press cuttings? As if you carry this big folder of press cuttings with you everywhere you go. I, I said, you, I don't carry them with me. There's thousands, you know. And they gave me, um, they, they let me have one phone call. So I, I rang up the British consulate in Delhi and I spoke to a lady called Mrs. McGregor. Um, explained to her what had happened. And she said to me, and I honestly thought that, in, you know, in the, in the passport, it pretty much says the might of the British Empire will come to your help if you need it. And I really thought that was true. And she says to me, oh, you, you're too far away. There's nothing I can do about it. And put the phone down, hung up on me. So, so much for the British Army turning up, you know. So then luckily, for some reason, phone calls into the British consulate. I, I didn't know this, but I found out a few seconds later, they're actually routed via London. So when you call the British consulate, you actually call London and then they connect you to the British consulate in, in India, which is a mad way around, but that's what happened. A lady came on the phone and said, uh, I've been listening to your conversation. I, I'm the exchange operator in Greenwich, wherever it was, in London. Um, is there anyone else you want to speak to? So don't put the phone down. Is there anyone else you want to speak to? You know, you can say it's the same phone call. So I said, oh, fantastic. Can you call my dad? <laughs> she got my got my dad on the phone, and I said to my dad, "Yeah, dad, I've been arrested in India. They think I'm a spy. <laughs> it's it's the maddest thing ever. Can you sort of get in touch with the government or something and try to get us some help? You know, they they don't believe who I am. They don't they don't believe anything, and they've taken their passports away. So I'm a, I feel quite vulnerable. Dad uh, tried to call various, uh, I think the foreign office and the various departments in, in the government, nobody was interested. So he, he rang up a newspaper uh, called the, the, the Daily Star and told them what had happened. And they put it on the front page, um, I think the next day or the day after. And at that point, the, the government got interested and started to pay attention and and um, and it all got sorted out. And we were they let us go. But I think we were there for about four days before they four or five days before they let us go anyway so that so that was that so that was that was the first attempt and then we came back to england uh, the airplane was still broken in india but i had another airplane the twin engine airplane so we got that one ready and then we started to to do the trip again except that this time because it was later in the year and we was worried about the you know the the weather uh, we we went west about so we, we went iceland first uh, greenland and and that way and and that's when it really started to get get frightening. We went to we went to uh, Iceland. We stopped off in Iceland to begin with. Uh, somebody from a record company there did, wanted to take us out for a drive and show us the sights, and he was a bit of an idiot. And he crushed the car, and we ended up getting stranded way out in the snow. But no, but luckily, um, after an hour or two, this some man came along and saw us and collected us and said you're you're really lucky i only come this way once a week <laughs> so so that was that so then we then we flew from there to greenland we had a problem coming out of we we stayed the night there and then coming out of greenland we had a, a problem with the airplane that the right hand engine started to to go a bit short. there's oil was leaking and it was 
uh, it would kind of ignite, there'd be a big flash of flame and then it would go out. So we had to turn back to Greenland, get that fixed, which we thought was fixed. Um, then we took off again and we, we, we ran for about three or four hours that time and it, and it started again. And by now it's dark and we're too far away from Greenland to go back and it's too uh, difficult and uh, an approach all through the mountains to try to do that in a night, in nighttime the airplane that we was in, especially with a sick engine. So we ended up going to a place called Frobisher Bay and made an emergency landing there, which was um, pretty scary, actually. You know, the, the heater in the airplane broke down. Um, so we had minus 52, I think it was. Minus 50, minus 54 in, in the air, inside the airplane. It, it was horrific. But luckily, we had those survival suits. We, we had the survival suits on in the airplane. And then we had um, like sleeping bags and whatever we could find wrapped around us. But everything was was icing up inside the airplane, and I'm on the side that well, I had the sick engine. So I'm I'm looking out of the engine, and you're you're flying over. You know you know you're over the the Arctic. You can you can actually see the icebergs. If you look down, you can see the icebergs glowing, and then as they go into the water, it just goes black. So it's really sinister. You know it, it's not a, a it's not a wonderful thing to see at all. It's, it's pretty frightening. And I'm looking out at the engine, I'm sort of looking down at the ocean, seeing these sinister old icebergs drifting around in this black ocean, and looking at this engine, which every sort of 10 or 15 seconds would be a massive flash of flame, which would shoot out, and then it would go out. And then, you know, at any moment now, that flame's not going to go out. It's just going to stay, and the thing's going to catch fire. But it didn't. You know, I, but that was scary. We probably flew for a couple of hours with it, two or three hours with it like that, before we got to Frobisher Bay. Got out of there, and then we... Sort of pretty much zigzagged away across the, uh, Canada and America and ended up in San Francisco where we had to put more fuel tanks into airplane to get across the Pacific. I was pretty scared about the Pacific flight because it's such a long way, you, you know, with a, with a small airplane. But we were, it was going pretty well. We got about halfway. We're sitting up at 12,000 feet just above the clouds, just skimming the top of the clouds. It's beautiful. Clouds as far as the eye could see, hundreds of miles of uh, just solid but beautiful white cloud and up above the moonlight was shining down. It was just glowing. It was, it was so pretty and that the stars are amazing. And I sort of settled back thinking, you know, what a fantastic experience this, it was. Um, and then both the engines stopped just dead. It didn't even splutter as if you just turned a switch and it just went off. That wakes you up quite a bit. <laughs> so didn't know what to do. You know, the airplane's, it, you know, it slows down very quickly and then you start to descend to keep the airspeed up so you can control it. So you're going down fairly quickly. Um, we probably had about 12 minutes before we would hit the ocean. And the thing that really noticed, as soon as you went into the cloud, and particularly to come out under the cloud, how incredibly black it was. You know, there is no starlight. There's no moonlight. No, it doesn't get through the clouds. There's no cities. We were probably 12, 1300 miles from any land at that point maybe more, maybe 15. And so there's no ambient light. There's nothing for the cities that's coming up and hitting the clouds and just giving you that glow, you know. So it was the blackest black I've ever seen. So you couldn't see the ocean, but we knew that we were going to, well, we, we assumed that we, we were going to go in it. We, we tried everything with the engines, couldn't get the engines running again, completely dead. But your, your, the procedure when you have an engine failure is to feather the engines. You, 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 you change the angle of the propeller, so they don't create any drag and they eventually stop, they just stop turning. Well, we, we didn't do that. Um, so they were still spinning, which is actually what saved us. We, I can't remember exactly how low we got, but it, it was 
pretty close to the ocean. The only, the only chance you have of, of really surviving any kind of landing on the ocean, uh, first of all, you need to be able to see it. So you can try to gauge, you know, to hold the airplane off and cushion it on. Um, you need to try to land along the top as well. There's all sorts of things you're supposed to do, none of which are really that practical. But the problem is if you can't see it, if you can't see the ocean, you, you can't do any of those things. So our, our chances of surviving the crash itself were, were, were minimal, to, to be fair, virtually non-existent. So it was, as, you're, as you're going down, you know, it's going to take a few minutes before you hit the ocean. You've got all these things to think about, all these terrible fears. You, know, you think you're going to die in the most horrible way. If you don't die in the most horrible way to begin with, you're going to die in an even more horrible way when, when the sharks turn up. You know, it's all happening at night. You know, if, you could, if you could write a story of the most horrible way to die, this would be up there. It would be a contender for, for that, that sort of thing. And I laugh about it now, but at the time, I, I, I was absolutely terrified. We, we, we both were. But, but what, what can you do? You, you, you know, the, the only way you're going to get through something like that is, is to not panic and to think about each stage of it. You know, if I survive the first stage, the, the crashing of it, what do I do? What do I have to do then to make sure I survive the next bit? And you just break everything down into a sequence of events. And if each, if each one goes well, it triggers the next one and you know what to do with the next one. You formulate uh, a very crude kind of plan for survival should each section, should you be lucky enough to get each through each, each one. And the thing that, that really was, was noticeable to me, or the thing I was most aware of going down was that if we did survive the crash, there was no way that we would both get out of the aeroplane. No way. You know, whoever was first into the little gap and onto the cable to put himself to the back, he had a chance of surviving. The other one was never going to make it. And so I decided the only way I could make sure that I got out the back would be to kill the man that, that I was with, which sounds horrific. And, and that thought, haunted me for for years I think about five or six years later where I, I bumped into Bob Thompson again obviously we didn't crash um and I had to confess to him you know I, I had to say I when we had that incident in the airplane over the Pacific I said I was actually thinking about st stabbing you with, with my little survival knife and I said and I've got to tell you because it's just it's bothered me ever since that I would be willing to or prepared to do something that's that terrible and he said to me he said don't worry about it i was thinking exactly the same thing myself <laughs> and it really helped it, it really made me feel better because it it really had bothered me for for, for years that, that i would i don't know if i'd ever have done it but be willing to even consider doing something that awful simply to save my own skin you know so you, you never know what you're going to do when you're when you're faced with you know something that's terrible Uh, we get very, very close to the water. We, we begin to get ready for the for the impact and deciding you know, how best to, to slow the aeroplane down and, and prepare for that without being able to see the ground. And like a miracle, really, the engines just fired up again. Both of them, both of them fired up. We flew back up to the same height, back to 12,000 feet. Couldn't believe our luck. No idea what had happened. No idea where they stopped. No idea where they started again. 
flew for about another 30 minutes and exactly the same thing happened again. They both quit again. And this time, no credit to me whatsoever, but the, the man I was with, Bob, he figured out what it was. And it was to do with ice forming on a tube. Well, some of these extra tanks that we had put in the aeroplane, well, some of them were in, in, the, in the nose and there wasn't any, it couldn't get pumped to them. So we, they had a tube that came out the bottom of the aeroplane and faced forward that air would go into it would, and it would pressurize the tank enough for the fuel to flow. So it was like a really half-hearted pressurization system for, for like a cheap fuel pump, really. But what was happening as we were sitting above the cloud, the moisture in the cloud was getting onto that tube and it was freezing it because it wasn't heated and and it froze a lump of ice formed over the end that caused an airlock to there that locked up the whole system so the fuel wouldn't flow anywhere and as we got lower and the air got warmer that bit of ice at the front slowly melted until it was clear and then the engines fired up again because that because fuel could flow we went back up and that's why it happened the second time because you went straight back into the same conditions so then when he figured it out we we stayed at a lower height and kept out the cloud. After surviving that near-death experience, Gary and his co-pilot Bob continued on over the Pacific to Hawaii, the Marshall Islands, Guam, onwards to Indonesia and Australia, and back to India, and finally back to London. We got back on Christmas Eve, uh, back to London. Um, <laughs> strangely enough, we, we got absolutely torn apart by, by British customs when we got back. Um, and the, the main customs man was an Indian. <laughs> but it's like I was haunted by them. They were they were really horrible, actually, very very um, very unfriendly, very very difficult. Um, but I thought, well, you know, the one good thing about this is that I've got all these photographs and all this film. You know, it, it should should make a, a really good little documentary. I sent all the film off to. Do you remember back before digital cameras, you had to send your film away to be developed? And then you'll get your, your prints back. Well, I sent, I sent all my stuff off to Kodak and they lost it, lost all of it. I never, I never got one single photograph back, not one. So we were devastated, absolutely devastated. To do a trip like that, with, you know, with, with so many things that happened, so many amazing things, so many frightening things, and to be, you know, taking photographs and doing your little films and to, to lose everything was absolutely devastating. Uh, It was a, it was probably the strangest sort of Christmas Eve I've, I've ever had, you know, Christmas. Because you, you've just been doing this this trip where, you know, it, it, every day, I mean, honest to God, I mean, every, every single day you're you're frightened. You know, you're, you're flying over oceans or mountains or deserts. You know, you, you've got this aeroplane that's got, you know, definitely, you know, the, the right hand in you was definitely suspect. It causes lots of problems. You, you, you never knew anyone any particular time if it was going to let you down or not or how badly it would let you down so every trip was frightening you know just just terrified so it was all just beautiful but but uh, frightening at, at the same time and that that stress you know that sort of pressure living on living like that sort of day in day out for for several months it, it sort of wears on you after a little bit so when, when it's finished and you're sitting back at home and the adventure is over everything feels very surreal it takes a you know a great amount of time really to sort of find yourself again to to re readjust to normal life again you know one of, one of the things about adventures is that when you're sitting at home in the warm and it's cozy and the fire is 
fire is uh, flickering away. Talking about adventure seems very, very exciting and, and, a, and a great deal of fun. And it's very, very different when you get out there, when you're actually doing it and things are going horribly wrong. And the reality of adventure is completely different to the, to like, you know, the, the childish idea of adventure. So I, I did a great deal of realizing that, that on, on the trip, it, it was, um, it had many, many moments where I was truly terrified and I thought we were going to die. And, but it was great. You, you know, um, I, it was such a cool thing to have done, but it was a very, very terrifying thing to be actually doing. In our conversation about this epic trip, Gary told me that one of the reasons he wanted to do this was to make his father proud. I asked him if that goal was accomplished. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I never actually asked him because he wasn't. It wasn't that he. He wasn't not proud before. You know, I had, a, I had a number one single. I was this big pop star. I had all this sort of success for the music and so on. So, man, I'm, I'm sure he was. Yeah, you know, I like. I think I said to you right, right at the beginning. I think it was more me. You know, I. I didn't feel proud of what I'd done. So I didn't think he would. I wanted to do something that was dangerous or that required a, a degree of courage because it seemed, um, oh God, it's so old school. That old school version of what manly is. You know, I went, my, my dad always was always a very manly sort of man. You know, I don't mean a fighty, drinky sort of man, but very honourable, very loyal, you know, very, very outspoken, you know, tough when he needed to be. And I... He's still alive. I've, I've looked up to my dad all my life. You know, he's sort of been the, the only person really be, before I was married, uh, the only person that I really wanted proud of me, you know, wanted to please him in any way that I could. And he never, he never made me feel like that. That, that that's, it's nothing to do with him whatsoever. It's simply my, I think my own insecurities because of how special I thought he was, my insecurities made me feel inferior and I wanted to do something to, to, to make him, feel proud of me that, that I would believe if that makes any sense I, I yeah I don't know you know after after that trip I became an air display pilot so I was doing low-level aerobatics and doing air displays all over Europe you, you know I think he was pretty proud of that as well yeah my, I, I think my, my, I, I do think my dad's been proud of me always actually it, I just had my own insecurities that needed to be sorted out in my in my early 20s I think Gary will be touring the U.S. this spring and is currently working on a new album. I have a link to his website in the show notes for more information on both of these things. His daughter Raven will also be releasing new music here in the future, so be on the lookout for that as well. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much to the legend that is Gary Newman for being on the show and sharing that incredible story. A quick reminder that you can buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel, Live Through That, on 90s Artist, wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please leave a review where you're listening. It always helps others find us. And of course, subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. We've got lots of great episodes this season. You can also follow me on threads at Mike Hipple and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 